Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about peace, conflict, and the media. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. Some myths are very tenacious. Americans have always looked at India as a democracy because that's how it began. Western media is often referred to India as the world's largest democracy. But during the last decade, the world has witnessed the decline of many democratic institutions in India. In a Time magazine article written by today's guest, Sushrita Vijayan, she questions whether India can still be called a democracy. Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his government have been especially harsh towards critics of the regime, including journalists. Journalists who've dared criticize the government, even some whose criticism one would call mild, have been harassed, detained, imprisoned, and even murdered. The media landscape has changed dramatically. 75% or more of news organizations are now owned by four or five large corporations, all led by allies of Modi. Sushrita Vijayan will be our guide through India's complex media landscape. Sushrita is a journalist and attorney, originally from Madras in southern India. Her new book, How Long Can the Moon Be Caged?, tells the story of political prisoners in India today, including artists, activists, and academics, and, of course, journalists. She co-authored the book with Francesca Recchia, Sushrita lives in New York City, and you'll hear some passing sirens in the background at one point in the interview. There's a phrase Sushrita likes to use to describe Indian culture and society, the cosmopolitanism of small places. I started by asking her to explain what that means. What the phrase really means to me is what the society, what Indian society used to be, which really is the peaceful coexistence of many and this coexistence was not something that happened because of engineering. It was something that was absolutely important for a society to just exist at a very bare minimum level. A place where people existed in a way that they helped each other, they were thoughtful, they were considerate. While this is a deeply religious and a society with caste hierarchies, people still tried their best. And I think that, of course, as we will speak and discuss, is, is increasingly eroded in the last few years. I want to spend the first part of our interview understanding how India got to where it is now. For your first book, Midnight's Borders, you traveled all around India's border regions and met with members of many minority groups. Most of our listeners are probably aware that India is a Hindu-majority country with a large Muslim minority. And it's well known that the caste system plays a role in social and economic stratification. But reality is even more complicated than that. This is a big ask, but could you give us a bird's eye view of the many groups that make up Indian society? Right. That's, that's a tall ask because India is impossible to define. But what one can really understand just by looking at even a small space is how diverse India is, that the people, the languages, the customs, the food, the, the linguistic dialects, the gods we pray to. So I just want to start by saying that it's impossible to define India. It's impossible to articulate how diverse India is. And it's exactly why that we should be very worried because the BJP government now is trying to create a certain kind of an Indian citizen who is Hindu, who speaks Hindi, who thinks a certain way. 
The other things that one really has to understand about India is that along with India's diversity, and also, as I said, the cosmopolitanism of small places exists something absolutely violent and brutal, which is India's caste system, which has existed for thousands of years, which consolidates into a very specific kind of institutionalist and institutionalized hierarchy during the colonial period. But post-independence, even while the Indian constitution offered political equality to everybody, which meant that everybody is equal before law, we really did not have the kind of social equality that law kind of envisioned. Mm -hmm. So what you really see is a society that is deeply divided, that's deeply hierarchical. And as the violence and a more right-wing ethno-nationalist state has taken over the country, those divisions are now increasingly becoming more violent, more brutal, more entrenched within uh, various existing institutions. Well, would you say that the vision of post-colonial India was a pluralistic one? I mean, how have minority groups been integrated into the or excluded from Indian politics and civil society historically? I think the Indian constitution was envisioned as a pluralistic con- constitution. And what is really interesting is if you look at the constitution-making process of India, you really just see so many diverse opinions about what the constitution should be, which in itself is very important because we need to have diversity of ideas. But the pluralism is some ways not some kind of a utopian idea that pluralism was absolutely important for India to exist. And I think because these were two nation states uh, and then later three with Bangladesh being split, India and Pakistan were both born as nation states out of a bloody partition, which meant that you were dealing with immense violence that was based on on, on the grounds of religion, but also Religion itself, because it divides itself along the lines of caste, also created different kinds of victims of violence and how different people who experienced violence then went on to create their own communities and histories of how they remember how this partition happened. So in some ways, the idea of the minorities also becomes problematic because you are then dividing people, saying that somehow they are different rather than saying that there's a certain kind of equality before the constitution. So what you really have is a new Indian state, freshly independent, trying, struggling to create equality. In my first book, I say that, you know, this was while we fought for freedom, what really happened was transfer of power, which meant that from one kind of colonial administrators who were predominantly British, The administrators then became uh, brown Indians who continue to hold some of the same very violent ideas of hierarchies and differences, which meant that we really did not perhaps succeed in really trying to create an equal society, a society where dignity becomes foundational to everyone. Narendra Modi, now India's prime minister, was chief minister of the state of Gujarat from 2001 to 2014. Modi has been called out inside and outside of India for his complicity in the anti-Muslim riots there in 2002. He's also been praised for the state's economic growth during his tenure. What was Modi's tenure in Gujarat like, and how did it differ from previous governorships? I think one thing that people often forget is that the first time Modi comes to power, he's not elected. 
he's actually he's replacing an existing chief minister of Gujarat. And after he becomes the chief minister, when he's not elected the first time, the Gujarat pogrom happens. So to kind of set this in context, Modi was the chief minister of Gujarat from 2001 to 2014. During his tenure, the state really becomes a laboratory for Hindutva experiment, which is exclusionary, which is autocratic, ethno-nationalistic. He's really trying out many of his ideas that he then goes on to implement as a prime minister in Gujarat. So under his leadership, what you really saw was an unprecedented targeting of the Muslims. I won't be very clear that Muslims and other minority minority and oppressed communities in India, whether they're Dalit, Bahujan, Adivasis, have always faced state violence. So what Modi is doing is not new, but the the nature, the the extent, the force kind of becomes more brutal, more violent. So under Modi, the Muslim population in Gujarat really see a kind of brutal, indiscriminate state violence, extrajudicial killing, targeted killings, political assassinations following the pogrom. And yet in all of these cases, Modi is given a clean shit by the Supreme Court of India. Despite being numerous, numerous prosecutable evidence, the courts actually say that there is no prosecutable evidence, which is very important because this is something that will become a mainstay in so much of the prosecutions against Modi and BJP and many other right-wing political leaders. And another thing to really also understand is that Modi is gone after almost everybody who resisted him during the Gujarat pogroms. Either they are, most of them are either jailed or they're dead. Another thing that you rightly pointed out is that everybody hyped Modi as presiding over growth and development. It was called the Gujarat model. But what the Gujarat model was in reality was a very much an aggressive implementation of growth and development on behalf of large private investors. So the Gujarat model in reality was working for the rich against the poor. It was an explosive mix of policies and actions, violent Indo-nationalism, crony capitalism. And before becoming prime minister, Modi, during his electoral campaign, really projected himself as this muscular nationalist, as the single powerful strongman. He used hate speeches in all of these rallies, and then he wins this landslide election in 2014. And of course, once he becomes a prime minister, you see everything experimented with in Gujarat between 2001 and 2014 then becomes a nationwide exercise in absolute brutality and violence. You know, in 2014, the BJP, a Hindu nationalist party, as you, as you pointed out, won the election by a landslide. What do you think accounts for this shift to the authoritarian right? I think we have to acknowledge the fact that one, so much of this fascism and so much of this right-wing tendencies have always existed in India. For example, Professor Gyan Prakash writing about his book on emergency that happened during Indira Gandhi's regime, you know, the first India's declared emergency, it makes a point that this deeply fascist ideology, authoritarian tendencies are already very much embedded within the constitution that gives so much power to the state to control the lives of people. Hindutva is a hundred-year cultural political project. This is not new. They've been working on this project for 100 years, right? So they've been working on, on the grassroots level. And with the advent of 24-hour news channels, what they really did was capture the cultural space. And they do this by 
cultural programming. They did this by really cultivating ideological foot soldiers that are stacked in every walk of life. You see a constant churning and changing of the journalistic media's landscape in which the 24-hour news channel becomes an extended arm of the state and large corporate houses. So this is really not something that just happens. I think at least a good 20 years before Modi comes to power, you really see them occupying every aspect of life, the cultural space, the political space, the legal space, and kind of revising and rewriting history, telling a Hindu majority population that they are the victims, that they do not have power, that somehow it is the others who are creating the issue, right? They really start questioning ideas of secularism. Secularism is called secular. They rewrite it as sick, S-I-C-K, secular, as in that secularism is really what is ailing India. This idea that, that India as a democracy is really failing and what we really need is an authoritarian leader who can just whip everybody into control. What you really saw happen in the United States is it's no different. Only in India, it's happening at a much faster pace and happening for a much, much longer time. In a sense, India is becoming more politically and ethnically polarized and more violent. And it sounds like you think that the press has as having played an important role in provoking this behavior. Absolutely. And the, and the press does it in multiple ways. I think we, sh we should really make a distinction between the television media and the print media. And I say this because while I believe that the television media, the 24-hour news channels have completely sold out, and so have vast majority of the other presses, I think there are still a handful of journalists on the ground in India who continue to report and valiantly under great odds. But the other group of journalists, what they've really done is they've become stenographers of the state. And they do this in multiple ways. One, Narendra Modi hasn't given a press conference since he's been in power. Wow. It's almost impossible to hear any critical commentary on the state in any of the mainstream media or press. Every instance of impropriety, violence, lack of action, absolute and abysmal failure of governance these things never get questioned. On the other hand, what they really do is blame everything on the opposition. It's as if you cannot criticize the government anymore. Second, it's this constant absolute megalomania where Narendra Modi becomes the front and center of all power, which means that the diversity of institutions kind of really erode. And then the press has been very much you know, they have been the cheerleaders of this this regime without giving it any kind of critique or pushback. Second, every time the state goes after a writer, a journalist, an intellectual, uh, a lawyer, a human rights defender, they actually use the press as the rallying call for the arrests. The press then repeats the lies of the state. For example, with the Bhima Koregaon 16 political prisoners, the press was very much responsible for creating the frenzy that there was evidence that these intellectuals and writers somehow had planned to assassinate the Prime Minister of India. In reality, five years later, we know that no such evidence exists, but many of those political prisoners continue to languish in prison. They regularly share false information, propaganda, even when they are checked, they delete a tweet or they delete a video, but they really don't go back and publish retractions. And so much of the anxiety in India right now is created by the press. You founded the Polis Project to work on these issues. Can you tell us more about it? One of the things you discovered 
is that in India, you think journalism is being criminalized. Absolutely. The idea for Polis Project, I think we were all feeling very frustrated. I was feeling very frustrated about two things. The two places that I knew really well, one was academia, another was writing or journalism. They both felt inadequate and hollowed out. Academia was becoming ossified with its own languages. So much of critical knowledge was not really being transferred to the larger public. And journalism had really become explainer journalism, which wasn't really reporting about the communities that were resisting. So for me, it was very important that we build an institution that brought together in-depth research and long-form journalism as a way to keep recording what's happening, but also as a way for us to understand the relationship between power and violence in this age where both academia and journalism had somehow just deeply disappointed the communities that they're supposed to aid. Criminalization of dissent has been happening for quite some time now. And we also felt that it was very important for us to articulate what this looks like. What does criminalization look like? And one of the things that we did in Polis Project is we did a project where we tried to document, at least through numbers, what was happening to journalists in India. And this was a project that we did where between May 2019 and August 2021, we try to document patterns of violence that was being inflicted on journalists. And we documented 256 instances of violence against journalists. Wow. So in all of these 256 instances, you really saw the state being the perpetrators of most of this violence. Violence included physical assaults, threats, detentions, defamation cases, arrests, in some cases, sexual assaults and charging journalists with sedition charges. And the fact that the state was the biggest perpetrator of violence in all of these instances is quite telling. And quite scary. Absolutely. Very, very scary. Coming up after a break, we'll hear the stories of political prisoners featured in Sushrita's recent book, How Long Can the Moon Be Caged? And we learn what happened to one news outlet in Kashmir that the Modi government accused of promoting narrative terrorism. I want to tell you about another podcast we love. It's called This Is My Silver Lining. This Is My Silver Lining shines a light on ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and they pay special attention to life's unexpected twists and turns. I just had the honor of being interviewed by co-host Ingrid and Kathleen. We talked about life changes, plans and surprises, and my mission to make peace more visible so people can begin believing that peace is possible. That episode is out now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's talk about your new book, How Long Can the Moon Be Caged? Voices of Indian Political Prisoners. You co-authored the book with Francesca Recchia, and it was published by the Pluto Press in August. Initially, this book was supposed to be an edited anthology of prison writings, and one of our researchers was work, working on this book, an incredibly brilliant young scholar and student leader called Afreen Fatima. Her house was demolished by the Indian state without due process and her father was arrested, all because they were Muslim and they were dissenting and they were really just bringing the community together. When the house was bulldozed, 90% of the book's material was also lost. And at that point in time, we realized that we had to respond to that political moment, which meant that this could no longer just be a collection of prison writings, but we really had to lay out what was happening. 
And in that process, we really started, again, we, as I said, we lost 90% of the book's material, which meant that we had to go back to these communities and start putting this thing together. And what this book really became was then a story of centering the communities of the political prisoners, making sure that we have a list of 250 political prisoners who've been arrested since Modi came to power. While the list is incomplete and ongoing, we felt it was important to name their names. The book has analysis. It kind of lays out how this moment came to be. So we see this mostly this book as an indictment of the current regime more than a book, but also important that because so much information is also disappearing from the web, that it was important for Mm -hmm. us to just collect and archive and put all of this together. And that's how this book came together. What you've described is an incredible ordeal that required an enormous amount of tenacity and, and perseverance on your part. The title of the book, I thought it was interesting, How Long Can the Moon Be Caged? It comes from a letter written by written from prison by Natasha Narwal. Can you tell us some of a little bit about Natasha's story? I just want to say that the book exists not because of my tenacity or mine and Francesca's, but also because of so many people who were part of the book, because of the communities that were willing to talk, because without the communities, without political prisoners willing to talk to us, Right. And speaking with so much courage and dignity, I, I think it would be impossible for us. So Natasha Narval is one of the many young student activists who were picked up, arrested in 2020. Natasha, uh, along with Devangana Kalita, belonged to a feminist organization called Pinjra Thod. And they were arrested by the police for being part of the anti-CAA protests. The anti-CAA protests were protests in India that was organized by young Muslim students and others to resist what was a new citizenship law that would end up manufacturing an entire group of stateless people, most of them who would be Muslim. These protests became revolutionary. They became so important that the state literally had to use violence and COVID (laughs) to shut it down. And Natasha was booked on the 26th of May 2020 by the Delhi police in what this called the FIR 59 or conspiracy case. Natasha and Devangana were one of the few people to have actually gotten the bail and released. But what you really see, uh, again, in the book, we've We're very clear not to single out one of them or all of them, but really talk about an entire community of student activists who were arrested. The accusation against all of them was that they organized a protest, organized peaceful protests. Wow, what a story. It's amazing. You wrote in The Nation about Kashmir Walla, an independent news outlet based in Kashmir. Its editor-in-chief, Fahad Shah, was charged with sedition in 2022, and he remains in prison. In August, Kashmir Walla's website and social media accounts were blocked in India, and the staff were evicted from their office. Why do you think the government saw Kashmir Walla as such a threat? I think it's very important for us to really understand what the Indian state does in Kashmir. When I write, I'm very clear to state that Kashmir is occupied by the Indian state, Uh, What's happening in India today might seem new to many people, but what's been happening in Kashmir has a much longer brutal history. And what we really have to understand that since the revocation of Article 370 that happened in 2019, almost any and all reportage critical of the Indian state has disappeared from local Kashmiri websites. 
So thousands of publications have deleted thousands of their archives. And a lot of the Kashmiri journalists really call this an erasure of memory, right? Like you're really just destroying, you're not only stopping journalists from reporting what's happening right now, you're also forcing them to delete entire archives of their reports going back decades. Now, why are they disappearing? Because the Indian state really does not want anyone to keep any records of what's happening on the ground, to a point where they now use the word terrorism to describe any kind of reporting, documenting, and writing that doesn't align with the Indian state. The Indian state has also created terms like journal terrorists, white-collar terrorists, uh, they also have a word called narrative terrorism to describe Shah in in, in uh-huh. one of their one of their complaints. They call Shah as someone who promotes narrative terrorism. So what you're really seeing is the Indian state unilaterally declaring the very act of writing, reporting, thinking as terrorism. The other thing that they've done is also do counterinsurgency-style operations on homes of journalists, which means that you literally go in, do cordon and searches in journalist homes. And this has been happening in, in Kashmir for a really, really long time. And for the first time, something like this happened in India when NewsClick was raided, where 800 homes of journalists was raided in India. But what happened in India now has been happening in Kashmir for a very long time. The other thing that they've done with Kashmiri journalists is put them on no-fly lists. They've had their passports taken away. Last year, India stopped Kashmiri photographer Sana Mattu from traveling to receive a Pulitzer Prize, which she shared with Reuters for covering you know, COVID in India. So what you're really seeing is an unprecedented attack of just going after Everyone who is now trying to report, journalists being charged with sedition. It's very hard for people to speak about this in India, even when I am narrating to you what I reported. It seems like it's an out-of-body experience because I reported this. And yet, even as I describe what I reported, it just it just feels so alarming. It sounds like from everything you've said, Journalists and news outlets in India essentially have to make a difficult choice, either complicity with the government or risk arrest. In this context, you've talked about the government's use of the UAPA laws. Can you illuminate us on that a little bit? Absolutely. One of the ways in which the state has criminalized dissent is by weaponizing laws, and we call this regimes of impunity in which you have a series of laws like the UAPA, which is, for all purposes in India's terror and sedition laws, a series of terror and sedition laws, and UAPA is one of them. UAPA is not a new law. It was first promulgated in 1967, and over the years it's been amended multiple times. And universally, the law has been called draconian, unlawful, illegal, in violation of various international rules and conventions. So... When Narendra Modi comes to power, he takes an already existing draconian law, and I don't know if it's, it's, you can make a draconian law worse, but he he succeeds. So in 2019, an amendment to the UAPA laws makes it possible for the government to unilaterally designate an individual as a terrorist, which means that without evidence, you can accuse someone of being a terrorist. The burden of proof is no longer with the state to prove that someone is a terrorist. It's the it's the person who's been accused to actually prove that they're not. 
The second thing that we have to understand is that soon after 9-11, when the Patriot Act was implemented, globally, countries like India also implemented their own versions of the Patriot Act. In India, it was called the POTA. And while POTA was repealed, many of the, again, draconian, illegal, unconstitutional, grotesque laws were re-legislated into the constitutions through other criminal provisions. And one of the things that was the saving grace when what was already a deplorable situation was something called the Sunset Clause, which meant that before every two years, the state would have to go to the parliament to seek permission to extend these emergency laws. They have now done away with these Sunset Clauses, which means that you have successfully entrenched emergency provisions into the normal functioning, which means that I think the Indian state, which already is an incredibly powerful state, now has absolute unfettered power over life and depth of any person within the territories of India. Another thing with the UAPA laws is that someone can be held without trial for years. Often, uh, bail is impossible to get. In many of the cases, uh, people have spent up to 10, 15 years in prison under the UAPA laws without a trial. And finally, when these UAPA cases go to court, because there is no proof, there is no evidence, the case is usually dismissed. But the fact that someone spends up to a decade waiting without a charge, so the process is also the punishment. And the same thing with so many of them who have been picked up since Modi came to power, it's the PK-16, Omar Khalid, journalist Siddi Kapan, who spent over 800 days for simply traveling to report on a gruesome rape and murder of a Dalit girl. So you essentially have laws that can arrest you, hold you in prison indefinitely for a crime you never committed. So that's the case of what happened to Umar Khalid, I guess. Yes. Uh, Omar Khalid, for those learning about him for the first time, is a student activist. And Omar Khalid was again arrested soon after the Delhi violence. And what is interesting in um, Omar's case is that he, again, like Natasha Devangana and the 19 other, was organizing protests. And actually, his message was that we need to have these protests because protesting is our secular right. He was he was arrested for demanding peace. And I think that's exactly the irony of all of this. Right Now, in Omar's case, again, there is no evidence. Two witnesses who testified against him have uh, already said that they testified under duress and they were forced to falsely implicate him. But what is really interesting is that just before Omar's arrest, a clip of Omar's speech was circulated heavily by all news channels. Finally, Omar Khalid's lawyers tell the court that this is not his speech. And what was presented to you is a doctored speech by the right-wing Indian politicians. The court then finally asks the television channels to produce the clip that they shared or why did they share this clip. And almost all of the news media channels said that what they shared as proof of uh, Omar's guilt was a doctored piece of evidence that was shared by a BJP politician who was inciting violence and hate speech during the Delhi violence. And despite this, Omar has been denied bail and he continues to languish in prison and the trial hasn't started. And Omar is in some ways a little bit more well-known because Omar Khalid is a student leader. He speaks English. There is an entire community around him rallying. Mm. But 
in some cases, we don't even hear about the names of the political prisoners who have been, especially young Muslim men, who are picked up and incarcerated without trial for years and years and years. That is so sad. And no wonder they have to make this draconian choice about complicity or arrest. I know you wrote your book not only to call attention to the repression happening in India today, but also to give a platform to voices of resistance. Would you like to share a story of resistance that inspires you? I think I think all of these stories are remarkable stories. But I think what has been inspiring is the few who have managed to get bail and come out. Every single one of them came out of the prison smiling. Everyone came out racing slogans to defend the Constitution, racing slogans for a better world, racing slogans in, in support of, of a revolution that would bring equality to people. And I always wondered what happens to someone who is treated so cruelly, so brutally, and taken everything is taken away from them. But all of them come out with this immense sense of hope for the future, despite what happened to them. Amazing. I think that is just truly, amazing. truly just amazing. And they continue to do this. When we asked them, you know, would you stop doing this? The one thing that they all said was, no, they've taken everything from us. They've done the worst for us. They've arrested us. They've imprisoned us. So we're not going to stop doing what we're doing. And they don't see this as heroic. They don't see this as resistance. They don't see this as an extraordinary act of moral courage. They simply see resistance as an act of survival. That's the, for them, what we consider as heroic or courageous is simply what a human being does to fight for dignity. And I think that just completely changes how you think about the state. And in, in front of this, this immense sense of hope, this immense sense that there is going to be change, the state which all its might seems so petty and so weak and so cruel. Every single one of them, every single one of them who has, again, it's not that there are many, it's a handful who have managed to get bail and come out. And I think that is a reminder that the state with all its might has still not managed to find a perfect way to take away what is fundamental to human spirit, which is to revolt, to resist, and to fight for dignity. That's a beautiful place to end. I must say that given the, the grim description of India that you've shared with us, it is really heartening to hear that there's voices of resistance in spite of it. And so that's really powerful. Sushitra, I want to thank you very much for sharing your insights in what's going on in India and how terribly journalists have been treated. And to a large extent, truth has been a major victim of all of this. Thank you so much for uh, making space and thanks for this conversation. You can find How Long Can the Moon Be Caged and Sushrita's first book, Midnight's Borders, where books are sold. You can find an excerpt of the book published in Time magazine in our show notes. We've also got a link to Sushrita's reporting on the Kashmir Walla. And there's more in-depth reporting on India from the Polis Project at thepolisproject.com. Something we didn't have time to include in this episode is the legacy of journalism and activism in Sushrita Vijayan's family. That includes her grandfather, who took part in India's freedom struggle and became one of the country's first political prisoners. 
You can find that story and more in our newsletter, which publishes on Thursday, November 9th. To sign up, go to warstoriespeacestories.org slash contact. If you're hearing this after that day, shoot us an email at info at warstoriespeacestories.org, and we'll be happy to forward it to you. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrew Moraskin. We had editing help on this episode from Faith McClure. Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories project, and I'm Jamil Simon. If you find this show valuable, please consider supporting our work with a tax-deductible donation. Visit our website at warstoriespeacestories.org and hit the donate button, or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and talk soon.